Thank you very much, Sona. Uh, look, it's a great privilege to join you all today and to be uh, able to have the opportunity to introduce uh, Dr. Nicole Bassett to you. Um, Nicole has over 20 years of experience uh, in the sector, particularly health and medical research, uh, but and has also been a CEO of Variety, uh, Children, Variety for Children, a charity, a really well-established charity uh, internationally and in New Zealand, uh, and much experience. One of the things you may be surprised to know is that Nicole has also been the director of one of Auckland's largest ballet schools as well, <laughs> so clearly a very multi-talented person. Uh, for those of you are familiar with industry breakthrough uh, campaigns, um, Nicole was part of Auckland University's For All Our Futures capital campaign, which raised over $380 million uh, in New Zealand uh, a few years ago was the culmination of that campaign. And it really just uh, broke new ground for significant giving and major donor giving in New Zealand. Uh, Nicole joined that campaign in her role with the Liggins Institute and the Auckland Bioengineering Institute partway through that campaign or halfway through and contributed 25 million of that 380 million. So no small uh, contribution at all. And that uh, campaign went on to win the Fundraising Institute Supreme Award winning uh, a prize, just recognizing how significant it was in fundraising history. Um, although some of the things that Nicole is going to share today have a particular University of Auckland context and may, perhaps could be seen to be relating to that tertiary environment or that ultra high net worth environment, what I, I know that you're going to really enjoy today is the fact that there are some very, very good principles being shared today which apply to all levels of major donor fundraising uh, across uh, both New Zealand and Australia. And I think we'll hear today some great lived experiences, some really challenging ideas. So I hope you uh, join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Nicole Bassett to share her presentation. Thank you very much, Nicole, over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Clive, and uh, welcome to everyone. Um, it's kind of weird doing a presentation when I can't see everyone's faces. I'm used to doing it in person where I can see everyone. So um, I apologize if I sometimes look like I'm wandering around and looking at things in strange places. It's um, hard not to have a focus. So I'm going to talk to you today about um, my take on major gifts fundraising and um, share some of my experience. So major gifts fundraising is about building partnerships between your organization and the donors that you have for transformational giving. Now, transformational giving, you might think, is um, a funny word to use in, in the context of donors. But remember, your donors do things because they want to make a difference. They want to be a person that can do something. And every organization will have a different threshold for what is transformational for them. Being a major gifts fundraiser doesn't mean you have to be um, bringing in six, seven, eight-figure digits all the time. That's not what it's about. It's about what is the gift going to do that's going to transform your organization. So it may be that your school is doing a project that's 10 grand. Well, that's a lot of money to a school. That's transformational. And the donor that you partner with will feel that they are making a major difference. That's the guts of what being a major gift fundraiser is all about. Now, it is a, a privilege, I believe, to help donors find their passion. Every donor who's giving what they consider to be a major gift is wanting to make a difference. And um, I have a little story I want to share it's a, a, of my experience, which is, you know, we had a particular donor who said for decades, I'm never going to give to the university because they don't know how to manage money. I'm never going to give them anything at all. 
And yet this person is number three on the New Zealand rich list, has won a knighthood for services to philanthropy. So it's not that they don't give, don't want to give, it's that they haven't found the thing within the university that they could be passionate about. So for us as fundraisers, it's our opportunity to help those donors find the thing that they are the most passionate about. And it can be challenging, but the focus has to be on the donor. And if you can help them find their passion, it's a little bit like giving a child that special toy on Christmas morning. The thrill that they get and the thrill that you get as the person who gave it to them is quite extraordinary. And in the case of fundraising, it's the beneficiary, either the, the school or the university, the research team or the student, who's also going to get the thrill out of that. So that, that partnership of making a difference is really vital. And in the case of this particular donor, they kept saying never going to give anything to the university, but they kept coming to things. So I took them aside one day at a, at a um, seminar that they were at and said, what is it that, that you want to do? Because you keep coming. So what is it you're interested in? And they said to me, no one's ever asked me that. Well, I'm sure that someone did ask them that at some stage, but however it was asked, it wasn't heard by this particular individual. So I said to them, look, I think I can find you something. Come and see me. I promise you I'm going to find something for you. It took me a long time to convince them. They said, well, what if I want to do to fund cancer and you find a drug and it's going to make lots of money for the university? You can put into the gift agreement that the money has to go back to to finding more discoveries and it has to be used to support research even further. Oh, well, I didn't know you could do that. And I was able to say to them, you can do whatever you like. It's your money and you can put rules around it as long as it fits within the ethos of the university. We're not a commercial entity, so we're not out to make revenue on the back of donors. And so understanding what this donor's motivation was, was really critical to how I started to go about figuring out what was going to work for them. So this particular donor, I, managed, I did a huge big deep dive. Our prospect research team did a background for me. So I knew, you know, what boards they were on, um, you know, what they might have been in the media for lately. But what I really wanted to know was what motivated them for all of the giving that they had done. And doing a massive deep dive, going down all kinds of strange rabbit holes, uh, mostly searching on Google, took me to a uh, destination I wasn't expecting to get to. And that was to discover that a granddaughter had been born with cerebral palsy. And the entire motivation of this family had been around providing things for her that would make her life better, but also that any other family who might have a monetary bar uh, barrier would still be able to benefit from those things. So they set up the very first um, cord blood stem cell transfer transplant uh, foundation here in New Zealand. They went to America and had treatment for the granddaughter because they could afford it. There was no such place in New Zealand. So they set one up for others here in New Zealand when they came back. When she went to school, there was no special needs unit. So they, they set up a special needs unit, not just for her, but for everyone else in the school at the same time. So understanding that their motivation was not just about the immediate thing, it was about how could they make a, the biggest difference to other people? So when we set the platform for our presentation to the donor, I had that very much in mind, linked with the research that we were already doing. 
Now, halfway through this particular conversation, the donor interrupted everything and said, well, I don't like, you've given me three things. I don't like that one, but I like those two. How much? And I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for them to say how much quite so quickly. So we were able to say to them, look, let's, let's go away and we'll put a budget together. Uh, wrangling academics to actually give an accurate budget can sometimes be very difficult. We gave them a budget and I went to meet with him and his son, two very scary people that were incredibly intimidating. Um, I'm not often intimidated, but I definitely was on this occasion. And they went through everything line by line by line, wanting me to justify why we needed everything in this budget. And at one point they said, well, we'll fund you a significant chunk, close to half a million for some equipment. And I said, that's great. That's very kind. That's very generous. But if you just give me the money for the equipment, it's going to sit in a cupboard gathering dust because I can't work the equipment without the staff and the students and the academics to undertake the research that's going to use the equipment. Oh, they said, well, in that case, you can have the lot. What they gave us was 2.95 million. Now, that project took me a good six months to get off the ground. But listening to the donor and understanding their needs is what made the difference. Now, we all know the donor cycle, right? Every fundraiser knows this cycle inside out and back to front. You identify someone, you cultivate them, you wait till you think they're ready, you ascertain their readiness, then you do the ask. And afterwards, we must make sure we steward. If I was to put value on everything on this circle, I would put 10 times more value on stewardship. Because your stewardship and how you look after your donor after you get that gift, regardless of whether it's $100 or $100 million, is going to set you up for you to be able to identify what is the next gift that that particular donor might want to consider. So how do you start identifying? People always say to me, I don't know where to start. Where can I start? What will I do? Well, every organization has alumni and friends. That is the best place to start. If you look internationally, the most successful uh, schools and tertiary institutions have massive alumni. Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, MIT, they get you the minute you arrive at that institution. Not when you leave, but when you arrive. They call you the class of 2022 if you enroll in that year. So you are... Um, they're capturing you right from the get-go to build a relationship with the organization. So you've got that already. If you're a school, you've got students, you've got parents, you've got grandparents, you've already got a community from which you can start looking. You've got friends, you've got aunts and uncles and babysitters and who knows what. You've got people who know about your organization and have an affinity for it for some reason. Sometimes we don't know why that is, but it's the starting point. And often that's, you know, the, the amount of time you put into finding your donor and doing the background of your donor is worth its weight in gold. It won't take you very long to do the proposal and do the ask, but it might take you six or seven months to find the right prospect and cultivate them. So I like this little simple um, kind of idea that prospect identification is as simple as ABC. If you think you've found something, someone, do they have the ability to make a gift? Well, what do I mean by that? I mean, if, if you know that the person is on the rich list and they've got property holdings of, you know, 70 million, you can guarantee that they would consider a million dollar gift. It's less than 
it's less than 1%. It doesn't matter the amount, but if you know that they have the capacity to give, you don't know how much they're going to give and you can never assume how much they're going to give. The second thing is, do they think that what you do is the best that there is? Do they think your organization is a rock star? Uh, do you generate um, students that go on to really high caliber careers? Have you had famous people at your school or your institution? Have you um, got people that are known to be um, you know, the best in the world at what they do, particularly in a tertiary setting? That's an opportunity. You, if they've come to you saying, oh, I saw in the paper that you did this project, um, I'm very interested in what you're doing. Can I have a talk, chat to you? Now, I can say that that actually happened to us where we had a donor um, read about a story in the paper about some research where the researcher had said, we've got this great grant, but from the Michael J. Fox Foundation, it was about Parkinson's disease, and they, um, but they didn't have enough money to finish it. So this person out of the blue, not known to us, phoned up and said, what would you do with a couple of hundred thousand? And I said, well, I'll come back to you on that. Can you just give me 24 hours to talk to the academics and I'll come back to you? Never try and give an answer straight away when you don't know. Saying it off the top of your head is the biggest risk to not getting a significant gift. If you undercut it, you can't go back and change your mind. If you say 10 grand, that's where you're stopping. You can't come back and say, actually, it's 100. In this case, they um, we did write a project and sent it to them. Um, in actual fact, I wrote it for 199 and the academic cut it down to 165,000 because he thought it was too much to ask for. But as a consequence of that, that donor put the money in the bank the next day. Now that was because a story was told and they knew we were the best in the world at what we were doing. Is there a link or a connection? This is quite important. Do you know your donor's story? Sometimes you don't, but if you can, you must see if you can find out what is it that pushes their buttons? What's their story? Have they given before? Are they um, on a board? Are they on a charitable board? I don't know about Australia, but here in New Zealand, you can search the charities register for trustees. So you can put someone's name in and you can find out whether or not they're a trustee on any other charity in New Zealand. Now that tells you they've got an interest in that subject. And it might help you tell you what they might be interested in giving within your organization. So cultivation, the most important thing about cultivation is to remember that people make partnerships and you as the prospect, as, as the fundraiser rather, are the conduit to that. This is a relationship between the donor, your organization, the cause, how the ask is made, which is quite critical, and the follow-up after that. You are not the center of this relationship, but you are the conduit to foster it between the donor and the organization. It's a little bit, it's a little bit like being the real estate agent. You're trying to find the house that fits the people that are trying to buy. And a good real estate agent will always listen to both parties. Don't show me a house that doesn't have a beach view if I've told you that's number one on my list. Well, that's the same as a donor. If a donor says, look, it all starts with children and I want to really look at that. Don't show them a project that's about older adults or aging. That's not what they're interested in. Ask questions, have a conversation, build the relationship in such a way that you can understand what it is that they might be interested in. This can often happen in several meetings. And the more conversations you can have, the more you will learn 
about the donor. And the more you learn about the donor, the more likely you are to get the ask right in terms of the fit for the donor. So everybody has networks and networks provide opportunities. Everybody you know is an opportunity to connect or a potential to connect to somebody. I don't necessarily mean the donor. Sometimes we use connectors to say, can you introduce me to so-and-so? But, you know, we don't, a good fundraiser is never taking the approach of being, you know, the equivalent of the, the vacuum cleaner salesperson or knocking on the door or, you know, the phone call that you get always at six o'clock saying, I've got a deal for you. That's not what we should be doing at major gifts level. It should always be about building that relationship with the donor. So for me, my daughter is um, the ballerina on the um, on your screen there is a performer in um, in London and my son happens to play cricket so since a very young age I've been around people in those two spheres now their kids are all grown now but those people I still know some of those people are in very prestigious organizations have different sorts of networks so there's always someone you can go to and ask a question do you know anything about this person do you know if they're interested in something so that helps you find your background, find your information that's going to help you develop the right proposal for that donor. Connections mean everything, but also it means you've got conversations that you can have when you're with your donor. So if you're still trying to warm them up and you haven't done an ask yet, but you've invited them to a cocktail event or, um, or you're just having a coffee even, having a conversation, you should be able to talk about other things. So your own personal interests outside of work are a really valuable thing to use. I mean, I'm always talking about something that's going on in dance in London, or I'm talking about the latest cricket or something, because it's that it's that leveling conversation that builds rapport that the donor isn't sitting there going, oh, they're going to, I'm just waiting for them to ask me for the money. Well, that shouldn't be what the focus is about. It's getting to know your donor. So don't underestimate the value of your own networks. Are they ready? This is hard. Are they ready? Are they ready? Well, you know, in my case with the donor I described at the beginning, I was not ready, but they were. And I didn't know that they were as ready as they were. So they had done their homework, as had the person who phoned us up and said, I'll give, you know, what would you do with a couple of hundred thousand? Well, the money was in the bank less than 12 hours after we gave them the proposal. They were ready. Sometimes donors are just waiting to be given a project that they want to give to. And we are too scared sometimes to put it on the table. So if you've got a good rapport, you'll know if your donor's ready. You can tell if they're ready. And I like to use this little um, acronym here. I call it KISS, so I've invented this myself. It's called KISS Your Donors. Know your donors are interests. Know all their interests in their background. Show that you are interested in them. I mean, remember their children's names. Remember the last time you saw them. Remember that uh, if they love the opera, ask them, did you see the latest opera? Doesn't mean you went, you don't have to have gone to everything as well, but you've got interest and you're showing that you remember them in a personal way. Tell compelling stories. Telling compelling stories is really exciting for donors. So my story about the, at the beginning of a donor who never wanted to give to the university to suddenly giving 2.95 million is a heck of a story. When I tell donors that story, they're excited by it themselves. Now, the reason that the donor gave us the money was because the project was a good fit. 
It's a project in cerebral palsy in teenage children, which is exactly the age of the granddaughter. So it, it's really important to do that. The final thing in my little KISS acronym here is keep it simple. As fundraisers, we love to talk, you know, because you're always talking to people, trying to find things out, looking at backgrounds, asking questions. But if you're talking to your donor, shut up. And it's the hardest thing I have, I think, on my agenda always is to be quiet. Because I always think oh, I'll talk about something else and maybe they'll say what they're interested in. And I'm trying to figure it all out. Keep it simple. Don't get complicated. Particularly if you're in a tertiary institution like I am and working in medical research, drilling that research down into such a way that donors can understand it is really critical. The donor often says to me, oh, I won't understand it, Nicole, you, you just tell me what's the best thing to do. And I always go back to them and say, no, 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 If you, it, that's not fair. This is a partnership. You need to be, feel really confident that you understand how your money's making a difference, but also what is it they're doing? And I can tell you that those guys can't explain it to you in a way that you can understand unless they really understand it themselves. So making it simple is... Uh, not just for you as the fundraiser, but also um, for your whoever's writing your proposal and whoever's giving your presentation to the donor. Plan making the ask. And I can't overemphasize this enough. Um, some organizations do use a planning form and they have a pre-meeting with whoever's going to be at the meeting. I think that's a good idea, um, particularly if it's an academic or the head of your institution who's going to be presenting the proposal, maybe they're giving a, a, a talk or a slideshow, or maybe they're just giving a, um, a, writ a written proposal that you're going to go through on the table. Know who is making the ask at the beginning of your discussion. Have this meeting with your organization in terms of this is how we're going to go in to do this ask. Remember, the fundraiser should be leading this conversation before you go to the ask. My, I'll be a little bit controversial. I don't think any leader of any organization should be making the ask. I absolutely don't. And the reason for saying that is I think that the leader of the organization holds a certain mana, which is the passion and enthusiasm for the project, whether it's building a performing arts center or a classroom or a new sports center or whether it's research or a PhD scholarship or whatever. They are passionate about what they do and keeping it separate from the money actually makes it easier for the donor to decide where they want to land. Listen, listen, listen. Let them ask questions. Let them interrupt you. Make sure that whoever's doing the presentation isn't going so fast that there isn't time to interrupt. Sometimes I will interrupt and say, so when you just said that to whoever's presenting, did you mean that this is what you're doing? Because if they've started to get into a whole lot of acronyms and jargon language, you can tell the donor's eyes are going to glaze over. So your job as the fundraiser in the room is to be sensitive to who's in the room. Be sensitive to the donor. Have they come with their family? Have they come with an extra uh, board member of their family trust? Who else is in the room? Are the students that they're potentially going to fund or the head of department that they're going to fund in the room. Sometimes it's good to ask those people to, to leave, to say, thanks very much for your presentation. We're just going to have a private word now. 
because sometimes donors want to ask questions, but they don't want to do it when the potential recipient is in the room. Donors are quite shy. There are very few donors that I know who um, have so much bravado that they don't care about who the money's going to and what it's going to be for. They want a stake in it. And I'd have to say that the larger the gift, the more involved the donor wants to be in most cases. It's also really important to remember that it's okay to wait until next time. Like my donor at the beginning, he said, how much? Well, I didn't actually know how much it was going to be. And at one point he asked twice and he asked the present, one of the presenters, well, what does that project cost? And the presenter said, oh, it's fine. I've already got some money from uh, the Health Research Council for this. And I just about kicked him under the table because I knew they'd got 10 grand and we were looking at over a million. And I knew they didn't have enough money to even finish the project. <laughs> so after, after the, uh, the, we said to the donors, let us go away and cost it up properly for you. And then we'll come back to you. At the end of the meeting and the donor had gone, uh, my academic said to me, oh, it went really well, Nicole. What do you think? You know, 10, 20 grand? I was like, no, this is over a million. And don't ever say we don't need any money, <laughs> no matter what. So it's important to know when it's okay to, to wait. But never leave the meeting without knowing what happens next. So you and your whoever, whoever's been giving the presentation and your donor understand what the next step is. Is the next step that we're going to create a budget and come back to you? Is the next step, well, you said yes to it, we're going to give you a gift agreement next? What is the next step? And make sure that everybody understands what the next step is. Plus, make sure you deliver. If you said, I'm going to get back to you tomorrow, make sure you do. Don't ever say, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's too vague. And your idea of as soon as we can might be next week, but the donor's idea might be tomorrow. So make sure you are specific. Say, you know, if, if you know it's going to take at least a week, say, we'll get back to you by Friday. And I would aim to get back to you on Thursday because then it shows you I'm serious about making sure that this gets to you in an opportune time. Making the ask, well, this is another one of my little acronyms. I like to um, remind myself that making the ask means we have to chirp like a bird, sing. You must have compassion, compassion for your project, compassion for your organization, and compassion for the donor. Plus, you must have some compassion for yourself. You're there for a reason because you're good at what you do. Honesty and integrity are incredibly important. Don't promise something you can't deliver. Don't overstate or even understate. If, the, if you know that a PhD scholarship, for example, costs 35,000 and the donor says, well, I can only afford 20, don't say that's fine. You might want to say, let us go away and look at it because we would have to make up the difference. They need to understand what the implications of that is. Because otherwise, if you say, yes, we can, where's that extra money going to come from? You're now putting a burden on your organization to ensure that they can come up with that extra amount every year for the four years of that PhD. So you're actually now putting the organization 60 grand in debt. You have to be clear. Plus, if a donor says to you, I want to fund tiddlywinks, and you know that your organization doesn't do tiddlywinks, 
you have to tell them. You have to be honest. Otherwise, it's uh, you, you, you are not being honest to them, but you're not being honest to themselves. And it will, it will damage your professional integrity. More importantly, it will damage your relationship with the donor. You must be saying to them, this is honest. And sometimes I have situations where a donor is talking to me about a particular area of research interest, but we don't do that research interest, but I know that it exists somewhere else. So I will say to them, look, we don't do that, but I do know that it's over here. So how about I set up another appointment for you to meet with those people and we can come up with a few ideas that you might be interested in. Be honest. At the end of the day, if the money is still going to come to your organization, it doesn't matter that it's not going to come to what you thought it was coming to in the first place. You must respect the relationship and listen to the donor. Be ready to turn on a dime to go somewhere different. I had one recently where um, we'd done all the background. We knew exactly what we, well, we thought. We knew exactly what they wanted. We pitched it absolutely perfectly. And the donor said, well, actually, it's not really spinning my wheels. But that throwaway comment you made about another area is something I'm really interested in. Well, we had no idea that that was of, of personal interest to them. They told us a personal story. And now we understand why. They want to have uh, an interest in that particular area. Relationships are critical. Um, going back to my donor who phoned in and said, we'll give you some money. After that, that donor got engaged with the university in another way. And they gave um, a PhD scholarship uh, to bioengineering, looking at modeling of um, asthma in children. And uh, another PhD scholarship in, at the Liggins Institute around uh, genomics and Parkinson's disease. So two completely genomics of asthma, actually, but they were nothing to do with each other, these two particular projects. So we had the review and we got them in and we let the two academics give their little presentations and the, they got to meet the students and all the rest of it. And when they'd all left, um, the donor and their family who was in the room said to me, you've just shown us two international rock stars, both doing world first cutting edge research. Do they ever work together? And I said, well, actually, it's funny you should say that because until you started funding their work, they didn't know what each other was doing. And now because they've been coming to these meetings to present to you, they've discovered they've got a mutual interest. So they are now creating a new project, which I like to say is, you know, Two, two world first babies having two world firsts having a baby to create a third world first. And so they've now got a project um, which has never been done before, looking at putting uh, genomics and modeling around coronary obstructive heart disease, which is sensational. And if it, it, it they're two-thirds of the way through it, well, this, this donor said, tell me how much it costs. I want to do that because it's cutting edge. So you know, three days later, he's giving us 360 grand. Well, that's more than the two PhD scholarships put together. So we didn't know that that's what they were interested in, but their honesty in terms of telling them what we were about and how we were working is actually respecting the donor. And, you know, sometimes you have really big donors, <clears throat> excuse me, who give and you're not quite sure what else they want to do. And you don't want to look at a big donor and think they're an endless pot of gold. But sometimes it's a good idea to tell them what else is going on in your organization, not because you're asking for anything, but because if they're a significant donor, then they should have a clear understanding of what the strategic planning and the strategic direction and your strategic priorities are within your organization, because they've got a pretty big stake in it now that they're funding things in a very significant way. So I did that with these same donors. I had was having coffee with them one day and said, look, I, you know, there's no, no um, ulterior motive here. I'm not here to ask you for anything. 
I just thought we should talk about what we're doing over the next five years in terms of our major strategy and the next big project that we're really looking for um, support over the next five years. Now, this is a $7 million project around genomics for rare diseases. Um, and I talked to them about it just and they asked lots of questions and then they, you know, they went away. And um, about three days later, I got a phone call going, can you send us a proposal about that project? We're very, very interested. So we did. And the following week, they came in and had a special meeting with us at their request. Now, I thought what they were going to do was um, help us find uh, additional donors for this particular project. No, they weren't. They said, we love it. We'll give you the first million to get the cab off the rank and we'll help you find the rest. Now, I had no idea that was going to happen. But if I hadn't respected the relationship with the donor and been honest with them up front, we'd have never even had the opportunity. I guess, too, is respecting the donor is also about not being afraid of the numbers. You know, when you get over 50 grand for any kind of ask, we all little get, get a little bit wobbly and think, oh, you know, it's so much money. I can't afford, I can't, I definitely can't ask for any more than that. Well, sometimes you can. And that's where with very large donors, if you've done your background homework and you know that they've got a significant capacity, don't be frightened of the numbers. Because you can always come down, but you can't go up. So if, it's, if you've costed it properly, and sometimes that's the hardest thing to do to get academics to actually cost it properly, because they're used to writing grants where they get told no more than they get told yes. If you cost it properly, they'll make you go through the line by line as to why you want to do that. And they might say, well, actually, we're not so keen on funding a research fellow. That's really expensive, but we're keen on funding the next generation of students. So you, it's a relationship, it's respecting them, but it's planning. So you are planning not only what you will ask, but what the alternatives might be. Always have in your plan, when you're making the ask, the ask rather, an alternative that if they wanna go sideways, that you can. Again, you can always say, let us come back to you at another time if you haven't quite got all the information. Stewardship, 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 stewardship. It's vital for your next donation. It's absolutely critical that you report when you said you would and that you do it on time. If you said you're gonna report in March and September, you better not be doing it in April and October. Donors of high, at high net wealth are really predominantly business people. And so they know about deadlines. So what I often do at the beginning of the year as I take a, a monthly planner, just you know, just with the months, not the days, just the months, and I write down all the donors that I've got and what have I got to do with those donors? Have I got um, a report that's due? Is this one up for renewal and when? And so then I can strategize it all out and I can so I can make sure I don't have everything all in one month and make sure that I'm not overloaded at the same time. The second thing that does is, is that when I get a new donor, I can say to them, I'm going to report to you in these months, because that might be where I can look at my calendar and say, that's where I'm going to be free. But I've got five to do in September, so I don't want another one, but I could do you in August. They don't care. They don't mind when it is. I, very rarely will a donor say they want it to be at a particular time. But have the conversation. Report on time. That's really important. Let them meet the team. Donors love to meet the people. This is a relationship. It's not a relationship with you, the fundraiser. 
you're a part of it, but you might not be the most vital part. Most likely the academic doing the work or the student or the principal of your school or the head of department, they are the most important person because that's actually the beneficiary of the money that they're giving you. So they like to meet the people. It makes them feel special. It makes them feel that they're, they're uh, you know, it's, it's kind of humanitarian, I guess, that it's, it's no wonder that things like um, uh, the Red Cross, et cetera, put photographs of children on things when they send thank yous to donors because it makes it personal. Let them meet your team. The team will love it as well. And it gives them a great opportunity to learn how to talk to donors. Multi-millionaires are still just people. They still put their shoes on the same way we do. And sometimes we can get spooked by them, but meeting them takes away that. Stewardship, stewardship, stewardship. I can't say it enough. It's five times easier to renew a gift with an existing donor than it is to find a new donor. So you're much better off spending time looking after the donors you've got. Make them feel special. So find opportunities. So whether it's to meet the students, whether it's a performance that you have maybe in your school or athletics or uh, give, let them present an award at the prize giving, view the building. Buildings are fantastic because you can turn the sod, you can lay the first concrete, you can open the first room, you can do all sorts of things. Attending special events, I really like that because it's a networking one. Um, that big high net wealth donors like to meet others. They like to know that there are, you know, there are other people doing the same as they are. We have um, two major events at our university. One is the Distinguished Alumni Awards, which is uh, a fantastic networking event where people can meet everyone from all different areas. And then we have the Chancellor's Circle, which it recognizes cumulative donors over. Um, certain thresholds of funds. Now, those people every year who are inducted into each level um, have to stand up in a room of 300 people and be acknowledged and clapped. Well, I can tell you that other people in the room who might be on level one will be going, well, how do I get to level two? What's the threshold for me to get there? Because they all have fear of missing out. I want to be recognized like all the others are as well. I want to be recognized at the next level. So the ability to attend special events is a great way to network and have conversations. So um, that's where your, your other interests outside of your workplace are really vital because you've got to have something else to talk about. You're not there to do an ask. You're not there to talk about the research. You're there just to have a nice time. So being able to talk about things is really important. Say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can never, ever say thank you enough. Thank you is the most underrated two words in the English language. Absolutely thank them. And particularly what I have a, um, in your reporting, so I have uh, what I call an impact report. So it's to tell the donor what we've done and what impact their money has made. And when I send it to academics, it's got a little template with little you know, headings as to what they should write under. The very first one says thank you. And I can tell you that 90% of the time, when I get that report from the academic, I have to go back to them and say, thank you means actually saying thank you in the body of the text paragraph as well. And it should be the first two words at the beginning of that paragraph and the last two words at the end of that paragraph as well. And they always say to me, oh, we don't need to do that. We can just tell them that we really appreciate what they've done for us. I was like, well, yes, but that's a whitewash of saying thank you. Donors need to hear that and they need to hear it a lot.
And so um, with that, I'd like to say thank you to all of you. It's been a pleasure um, giving you this talk today and I hope you've managed to find something interesting out of it. That is great, Nicole. Thank you so much. What a, um, what a wonderful presentation. Uh, and there was a, an abundance of, I just love the lived experience uh, that you just shared with us um, and really, really do appreciate that. It's, um, it's rich uh, when it's based on these real personal engagements. Um, I've got a number of uh, questions, uh, but <laughs> the Q&A uh, feature is open and I would definitely like to invite everybody to use that and I'll happily uh, feed uh, through those questions. One of the uh, questions I had just to start with, Nicole, what is the, um, and I'm assuming that this is potentially one of those scalable solutions, but when you, what is the volume of major donor relationships that you're typically managing at any one time? And then based on your previous roles and experiences and thinking about how this might work in a scenario where there's a big advancement team or a very, very small one-person development team, is this a scalable uh, task? That's a really good question and, and quite a tricky one to answer because I think everyone's situation is slightly different. So, you know, for example, um, I, I have a quite a big portfolio. So in, for the Liggins Institute, I have a list of about 65 prospects of which I'd say 10 are my major donors. So those, those really large donors. But for bioengineering, I have 12 prospects total and 50% of them are major donors. So there's a, it's the nature of the organization and the nature of what you're looking for. So for example, you know, the Liggins Institute's been around for a long time and they used to have a, a part-time fundraiser, but they did lots of events. So they've got lots of low level donors who give $100 once a month or even once a year, but they have a stake in the Institute as well. And they often turn into bequests that are quite substantial. Whereas um, the Bioengineering Institute never had a fundraiser until I started there five years ago. And so they'd never had any philanthropic um, funds brought in. So we, we, we started from a platform of building friends and relationships by telling stories in the media, but that's not going to generate what I call the, you know, the $100 donor. What it has generated is major gifts. So my focus there is almost entirely on major gifts. Um, Whereas at Liggins, it's across everything. I think when you're a small team, you have to be a jack of all trades. And I kind of, um, in my area, because I'm looking after research institutes. So just to put that in context, 100% research. So no undergraduate teaching. So I'm not in the business of doing scholarships for undergraduate students. I'm only looking at funding research and graduate students uh, and resources for them. So, you know, one, is, one institution, institute rather is, really major donors and I only concentrate on that I'd rather find another major donor there's no I don't need to have 50 people giving me a hundred dollars a year it's it's just as much work to look after that than find someone who's going to give me three or four million in the case of the, the Liggins Institute those those donors have had a stake in that institute for 20 years and so you don't want to ignore them mm. because they will turn into something else if you keep looking after them I had one that I had a bequest two weeks ago came out of nowhere, 150 grand, residual estate. So this was a fairly significant estate if we get the residual of it, right? And I sent the, um, the notice from the lawyer to the director and said, this person's not anywhere in any of our databases. I don't know who they are. Do you know the name? And he said, 
oh yeah I had a coffee with that lady a couple of years ago she was a nurse in my unit at the neonatal intensive care unit and I was like is there anyone else you've had coffee with that you should tell me about <laughs> because we could have had a conversation with that lady you know yeah. we could have done all kinds of things I mean, I'm not not saying that because we would have got more out of it but we could have had a different kind of relationship with her yeah yeah, great. Um, Rachel McDonald's asked a, a great question. Thank you, uh, Rachel. And I had one uh, aligned to so what um, Rachel has asked is, what information uh, do you include in an impact report typically? Ah, so we have various sections. And, and remember that this is designed for research. Um, so you would modify it, say, if you were in an arts faculty or if it was for a building project, you might modify it slightly. So there's always the thank you up front. Um, and then we have like a little synopsis. It's maybe one to two paragraphs that says, this is the money you gave me. This is what I've done with it. And this is the outcome that's in a, in a sort of like a summary. And then we have what we call research outputs. So we tell the story of the research. So, you know, maybe just to remind them what the research was about and what it was trying to achieve. And then what have you done? What's come out of it? So we found this, that, and the other thing. We discovered that you know, we can develop a, a model for asthma that's never been done before, which will help um, determine what strength an atomizer should be in a child with asthma. So that's pretty amazing. So that's the output. The outputs might also be you've published a paper, you've been on the radio, you've had a um, story in the news. I'd put all of those things in and put links into them if, if it's um, a media story. Um, they like to see those sorts of things. And then we usually have um, what, what I call what I call outcomes, which is different to outputs. Outcomes might be what you have, what has been translated. So have you changed something? So in the case of research, it might be that, so we've done this research and we've discovered that we can do something. So now we've provided this tool to some doctors who are gonna see if it really makes a difference to those kids. So taking a longer thing. So if it was a building, for example, um, so our goal was to build a building. We needed to um, raise everything. We're two thirds of the way there. Your money's helped us do this. Um, we've got to do X, Y, and Z. The outcome is we're still looking for a bit more or we're having our grand opening on this day and we're looking forward to seeing you. Right. And just related to that, um, and obviously it depends significantly on the nature of the what the donor is giving to, but yeah. would you, are your impact reports typically once per year? Do you have donors who like to see more things more often or less often than that what's your typical routine if, if, there's, the first thing is there's no typical routine every donor <laughs> is an individual just as every person is an individual so they will have different requirements I mean I've got one donor now this is an interesting story we went to a local rotary meeting and it was a breakfast meeting so it was like you know seven o'clock in the morning and it was on the other side of the city so the academic um and myself who actually happened to live quite closely together had to get up at like you know six o'clock in the morning to get to the jolly thing because it was on the other side of town and it was very small there was only about maybe 12 people there we had a lovely gentleman who was the current president who looked after us we had breakfast the academic did their thing we had coffee and talked to them all afterwards didn't think too much about it actually we didn't think there was anybody of great consequence in the room well, we were a bit stupid because two weeks later, we got a call from that gentleman who'd been hosting us saying, I want to come and see you. And he came to see us and knew that we were doing some work on microbiome, um, so gut bugs, and uh, known as the third brain. So they can control how the rest of your body responds if your bugs are out of whack. 
And he said, I want to fund this research and I want to help you find some donors. So we got the proposal together. We told him, it, you know, so we got it all together. He's, he knew what we were doing, put all the budget together, and it was a million dollars over four years. No, I'm sorry, over two years. Yeah, a million dollars over two years. And he said to us straight away, as a businessman, well, I'm not going to give it to you all up front. I'm going to give it to you at, at um, quarterly. And I want to see a financial report and a research report every quarter. Brilliant. Yeah. Now, he actually comes to our monthly meetings and has now decided that he's not finding any more donors. So that original one million has now turned into five. Great. He's stuff. funding a whole lot of other projects, but he doesn't want anybody else to be involved. And so he understands now that um, if he wants to fund all the other projects, the money is going to go up. But he's mm. been so intimately involved that he understands, you know, that the cost of the staff, um, the turnover of the staff, the expertise, the students, the resources, he understands where all the money is going. Now, that's quite extreme. Um, I've got uh, an, an international donor who's now funding in excess of 10 million over, over several years. Um, and they want us to report six monthly, but they want detailed finance reports and they want detailed reports from the academics as well. So it's really about asking your donor, how often would they like you to report? And I would say mostly, mostly in, um, in the case of significant donors, so anything over half a million, well, I think anything that's over, over 50 grand is significant, um, particularly if it's on a regular basis that is six monthly yeah right. as a minimum okay hey thank you um i'm not sure maybe one or two more questions but there's a, a question here being posed by uh, emma zagan a tricky question surprise surprise from emma a tricky question uh and this is possibly particularly relevant at the moment as we're living in some pretty uncertain times economically inflation covid recession etc you know a few things around what uh, Emma is asking is with the gift agreements that, the, that you do, and they obviously go through to the vice chancellor and back again, do you prepare those or does the university prepare those on the basis that they're a legally binding agreement or do you have them more as a kind of writing to confirm the intention? How do you handle those and have you? Uh, how have you handled, invariably this might happen, where someone wants to make a variation to where, where things may have started out for different reasons? Yeah, that's that's not as uh, unusual as you might expect. Um, so there's two things in there. We have a, a policy that any any gift, even if it's going to be over um, multiple years, that's over a million, um, must have a, a due diligence done on it. So um, basically, it's a background check, um, and it's a very loose background check. I mean, if you really wanted to delve into the financial viability of a donor or, or see if they'd done something really unscrupulous, you'd probably have to employ a third party to do that. But we do do a due diligence that at least we're doing some media checks to say, you know, have they been in the media lately? Have they been involved with something that's a bit dodgy? Um, we did have ones a couple of years ago that had been a bit, that had been reported that they'd been doing some dodgy tax things and then subsequently it's been reported that they haven't so you know you, you want to be careful um, and it's good to do that because it's also doing things like looking at the university's um, commitment to, to not doing anything with fossil fuels to not doing anything in child labor 
Um, so that you know, you, tobacco and alcohol advertising, obviously the main sorts of things. So you're just checking that there's nothing that your donor's involved with that might bring the university into disrepute or would question why we would take it. So for example, there was an instance recently where um, an organization internationally was identified who wanted to give money and it took some time to understand that it actually was coming from um, gaming, from um, gambling. And so we turned it down because it just was unethical, didn't, didn't meet our, our needs. In terms of the gift agreement, um, you know, you have a conversation with the donor about this is the project and this is the money and this is how you've decided you're going to pay it over whatever time. You've got to put something in writing because what if I got hit by a bus tomorrow? Nobody knows what that agreement was. And so it's not a legally binding agreement, but it basically says that you, the donor, have agreed to give the University of Auckland Foundation or the university, depending on who they're giving it to, it's usually to the foundation, um, for this purpose and for uh, this, this area of research at this part of the university. So like for in the case of the Liggins Institute, it might be for microbiome research at the Liggins Institute. So if somebody else was doing microbiome, it can't go to them. It has to go to the Liggins Institute. And then we also put in a schedule that says when the payments are going to be made so that the donor's got this copy and the university has a copy. With big, big, big gifts like this, I usually attach the proposal that we've given them to that document. So that's that's because that's what we've given them. Yeah. The gift agreement is signed, obviously, by the donor and then by the trustees of the foundation and the vice chancellor when it's a significant million dollar gift. Um, because then everybody knows what it's about. I mean, the, you know, it's, when you're getting a big gift like that, I'd be in big trouble if the VC didn't know about it <laughs> because they might be at a function and they don't know that that person in the room has just given you a million dollars. Well, that would be bad. So your job is to look after relationships all around as well. It also means everything sits in our database. We use Razor's Edge. And so the contact notes, um, of course, are publicly available if anybody was to request them uh, anything about themselves, including the, any email that was ever written about them, they can have that under the Freedom of Information Act. So, you you know, I make sure I put into the, the donor's notes what has happened, but in a very, you know, non-emotional way. I didn't go, oh, my God, it was so amazing. We had a fabulous time and I didn't know we were going to get this. I put any of that nonsense. I tell everybody in the office, but um, what would go in was we've made this agreement we then have, when the gift agreement is signed by both, it's loaded into the record, so it's there. So sometimes, you know, I've got a few that I inherited, so I've got to, you know, go back and look at what was the agreement, what did we want to do? And in some instances, we have to go back to the donor and say, look, that's now no longer possible, and I do have one just this week that I've been doing. So we have a, um, a donor who was doing a project. Um, we were doing a project with McLaren in the UK, and uh, they McLaren used to have a... Um, healthcare related research R&D development area. Um, so they took some of their whiz-bang car stuff and engineering and applied it to um, appliances basically. And we were working with them in this particular space, but a new uh, CEO came into McLaren and uh, business wasn't doing so great. So they cut that whole arm. So now we can't fulfill the donor's desire to support the project. So we've gone back to the donor and said, out of our control, this is what's happened, but this is what we suggest we can do that's still in the same space. So you have a conversation. Yeah. When you repurpose it, we have to write another letter. So we write a, you know, a, doc a document that says, 
remember we had this conversation, we're just making sure we all agreed that this is what we agreed to do next. Great. Okay, then don't us forget. To, yeah, that's true. I have so many more questions, uh, but I can't ask you because we run out of time. I'm going to hand back to Tony <laughs> shortly. Um, but a thank you for providing here on the screen your contact details. So we have any burning, burning must must know questions. I'm sure we can uh, reach out to you. And uh, from me personally, thank you very much again for sharing your, your lived experience. It's the most valuable thing as practitioners we can share with our peers. And I really appreciate the time and effort you've made today. Thanks, Nicole.